You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice and the Denver Herald. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Denver Could Soon Add 50 Affordable Housing Units for Seniors by Robert Davis. From the Denver Herald, I'll be reading Taking an Alzheimer's Diagnosis a Mile at a Time by Deb Hurley-Brobst. And Butterfly Pavilion Kicks Off Pollinator Palooza Opens Largest Ever Pollinator Exhibit by Luke Zarzecki. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from the Denver Herald and possibly Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Denver could soon add 50 affordable housing units for seniors by Robert Davis. Denver's Safety and Homelessness Committee tentatively agreed on April 19th to loan $1.25 million to a developer who plans to build 50 affordable housing units for seniors in the Central Park neighborhood. Known as the St. Stephen's Apartments, the new building will serve seniors aged 62 and older who make between $25,000 and $50,000 per year, or 30% to 60% of Denver's area median income. The four-story building, located at 2189 North Valencia Street, could include 45 one-bedroom apartments and five two-bedroom units. It's also located within a tenth of a mile of an RTD bus stop, a half mile of a medical clinic and grocery store, according to a proposal from the Department of Housing Stability. Adam Lyons, a lead housing development officer with HOST, told the council that the average rent at St. Stephen's will range from around $659 for a one-bedroom to nearly $1,200 for a two-bedroom. Groundbreaking is expected to happen in July of 2023, and tenants could begin moving in early 2024, Lyons added. The St. Stephen's project is being proposed at a time when many seniors in Denver are facing an increased risk of losing their homes. According to data from the Metro Denver Homeless Initiative, older women are the fastest growing subpopulation of people experiencing homelessness in Denver. Jamie Reif, MDHI's executive director, told the city council on April 12th that more seniors are becoming homeless because inflation and the rising cost of living are significantly impacting people on fixed incomes. On a fixed income, you can't afford to live here, Reif told the council, and they're also being pushed further and further away from medical care, support systems, and I think that is just one of the challenges we are facing. Last year, the Denver Voice examined poverty trends in Colorado over the last decade and found that black and Hispanic seniors experience poverty at two to three times the rate of their white counterparts. At the same time, living conditions in other senior living facilities have come under increasing scrutiny. In September of 2022, 46 apartments at the Thomas Bean Towers flooded and caused widespread water damage. Some residents told KDVR about their concerns for the health and safety of seniors with chronic illnesses who live in the building. In March 2023, the Arbor View Senior Apartments in Arvada doubled its rent for some residents and gave them a 30-day notice of the change, according to a report from Denver 7. The apartment complex said the rent increase was due to a rise in employee wages and price inflation from its vendors and suppliers. 
To address some of these issues, the loan from the Denver City Council also includes a 60-year affordability covenant, which restricts the ability of future building owners to raise the rent. Similarly, the building will also be all-electric ready, according to Host's proposal. That means that it will include mechanisms to convert gas-powered water heaters into electric ones. It will also include the structural supports for a roof-mounted solar panel system to help cut down on utility costs. The full city council still needs to approve the loan before it is finalized. It is expected to appear before the body within the next three weeks. The following articles are from the Denver Herald. Taking an Alzheimer's Diagnosis a Mile at a Time by Deb Hurley Brobst. Mark Macy is a fighter. The Evergreen resident always has been driven to succeed as an attorney, an endurance athlete, and a devoted family man. Now, at age 69, he continues his drive to succeed in his battle against Alzheimer's disease. He believes that his green diet, exercise, and positive attitude will help him do what many others haven't, beat the disease. Some people think I'm nuts, said Macy, 69, who everyone calls Mace. I believe I can beat it. If I don't, I'm still a happy guy. Mace has lived in Evergreen since 1980 with Pam, his high school sweetheart and wife of 46 years. Mace still runs regularly, sometimes on the family's six-acre property and sometimes with friends who help keep him steady and on track. When Mace got his diagnosis in 2018, considered early-onset Alzheimer's disease because he was 64, the family decided it was not going to hide from the disease, friends, or the community. That's why son Travis Macy, a 2001 Evergreen High School graduate and former EHS English teacher, decided to write a book with Mace about their journey called A Mile at a Time, a father and son's inspiring Alzheimer's journey of love, adventure, and hope. Travis and Mace travel around the country speaking about Alzheimer's disease, and they will be at the Alzheimer's Foundation of America's Alzheimer's and Caregiving Educational Conference on May 17th. The family also will be at the Evergreen Tap House for a book signing that evening. To his credit, Mace decided he was not going to be ashamed of Alzheimer's and not going to hide it, Travis said. He's continued to do that, and honestly, it's turned out that his treatment has been communicating with other Alzheimer's families. Dr. Allison Rice, with the Alzheimer's Foundation of America's Medical, Scientific, and Memory Screening Advisory Board, says Alzheimer's disease is not always obvious, especially at first. We all get more forgetful, and sometimes we get so much clutter in our brains that we may do something wrong or different, like misplace our keys or forget something on the chore list, she explained. The line between forgetfulness and an Alzheimer's disease diagnosis would be when someone suddenly doesn't know where they are, Rice said. They wander off or try to go someplace from the past. Another big one, she added, is not getting words right. Not just mispronouncing, said Rice, who is an associate professor of medicine at the NYU Long Island School of Medicine, but when you can't find the words or when you forget something basic like your own phone number. After a point, it becomes clear that it cannot be attributed to a normal situation. Mace spent his life as a hard-working trial attorney, forsaking sleep to do it all, spending time with his family while working long hours at his practice. 
He began competing in adventure racing in the 1980s when the grueling sport was forming and competed in all eight Echo Challenge races from 1995 to 2002. Travis, following in his dad's footsteps, became an accomplished ultra-athlete, traveling around the world to race professionally. Prior to Mace's diagnosis, the father and son did hundreds of the same races, mostly solo events in which both entered. We did lots of the same adventure races in which Dad competed on a team with friends and I raced for the win with a competitive team, Travis explained. In 2019, a year after Mace's diagnosis, the duo traveled to Fiji to race in the revived Echo Challenge, a 10-day, 417-mile race with 280 competitors who traversed mountains, rivers, swamps, and oceans, the first time the two had competed on the same team. While the team did not finish, Travis considered it a win because endurance racing doesn't have a category for competitors with Alzheimer's disease. Mace said leading up to his diagnosis, he noticed he wasn't talking properly, making his trial attorney career more difficult. Word finding had become more difficult for him, wife Pam said, but not to where anyone would notice. Mace saw a neurologist and a brain MRI came back normal, so they thought he was in the clear. But the symptoms kept persisting. Things like Mace couldn't read a map, and he suddenly had difficulty pulling a car into a parking space. But concern about Mace's health had to wait while Pam received a kidney transplant. Mace wasn't a match, but he donated one anyway to someone else who needed one. Donors must be in excellent health to donate. When Mace was first diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, the doctor told him to start getting his affairs in order immediately and to take a family trip soon. We weren't surprised by the diagnosis, Pam said, but we were still shocked. He's the healthiest person I know. I've had the health issues, so we thought I'd be the first to go. The diagnosis was reorienting as we think about the future. Travis added, when the diagnosis came, it was not a surprise, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was really tough. For me, initially, it was a mad scramble to try to find a cure and treatments. Immediately, we have to figure out finances, putting things into a trust. Maybe we need to build a house on my parents' property so we can take care of them. In hindsight, I was trying to control something uncontrollable. Since his diagnosis nearly five years ago, Mace is losing more cognitive abilities. He no longer drives a car, he sometimes has difficulty reading and writing, and his balance isn't what it once was. In addition to his wife and son, he has strong support from his two daughters, Caitlin Macy Sandoval of Denver and Donovan Macy of Tampa, Florida, plus five grandchildren to play with. Rice said the degree of stress and sadness for both the person with the Alzheimer's diagnosis and that person's loved ones can be overwhelming. The outcome is inevitable, she said. This disease only goes in one direction, and the final pathway is grim. Living with this person you love and watching the loss of that is just horrendous. Plus, caregivers who want to take care of their loved ones themselves face stress and depression because they become fixated on caring for the other person, not themselves. She said caregivers must take care of themselves and lean on family members and friends for support. Travis said Mace has had sayings during races and life. In fact, Mace has a tattoo that says, it's all good training on his forearm because he believes there's value in going through something difficult. That's Mace's attitude towards Alzheimer's disease. 
The disease's toll can be seen in the races that father and son have undertaken as time goes by. They ran the Leadville 50-mile race in 2021, the Leadville Marathon in 2022, and they are planning to do the Leadville 10K this year. I have realized that winning doesn't matter. I just want to run with my dad, Travis explained. The family knows that Mesa's health continues to deteriorate, so they are planning for the future while still trying to be present in the here and now. Mace wants people to know that people with Alzheimer's disease are like everyone else, and they go on with life, though a little differently. Just love the person with Alzheimer's, Pam said. They are the same person. As things change, we will have to change. It's not going to get easier. Pam, already patient with an optimistic outlook, said she's learned that it's okay to ask for help. Pam said it was important for them to reach out to others on the Alzheimer's disease journey to share information and, connect, and to connect for support. Why stay home and hide, she asked. Travis said connecting with others on the same path has become a new mission, and the big goal of the book is to make a difference and help people. Secondarily, it gave father and son something to do together. We are not Alzheimer experts, Travis said, but we are sharing our story. Mace continues to find happiness in his life, and Travis attributes that to my mom being incredibly supportive and energetic. What is important to know, Mace said, is you will still be okay even after the diagnosis. I'm still an athlete, and as good as I ever was. I'm perfectly happy. I have a great family. Butterfly Pavilion kicks off Pollinator Palooza, opens largest ever pollinator exhibit by Luke Zarzecki. The Butterfly Pavilion kicked off Pollinator Palooza with the opening of a new exhibit on May 2nd with help from Congresswoman Brittany Peterson and Marlon Reese, Colorado's first gentleman. When I think about the challenges that we're facing, having a three-year-old son and what his future looks like, it can be incredibly overwhelming. But it's people like all of you who inspire me to believe that we're going to rise to the occasion and meet this moment, said Peterson. For the next two months, the pavilion will be celebrating pollinators. Their new exhibit, Pollinator Place, will be their largest pollinator-focused exhibit ever, showcasing beetles, ants, and bumblebees. It comes at a time when pollinators and insects are facing continually increasing threats from climate change. Dr. Richard Reading, the Butterfly Pavilion's Vice President of Science and Conservation, sounded the alarm. We are in the midst of the sixth mass extinction on planet Earth, and this one is different than the rest in that it's caused by one of nature's own, people. And unfortunately, insects and invertebrates are not spared by this loss, he said. Reading said some are also calling this period of time the insect apocalypse, pointing to some professionals that believe the planet lost 45% of pollinators in the last few centuries. He emphasized the importance of pollinators to the environment and to humans. Creating soil, purifying water, and pollinating food are among some of their ecosystem services, and said they create one out of every three bites of food people take. He paraphrased a quote from a biologist. If people disappeared, the planet would quickly return to a state of normalcy. But if the invertebrates disappeared, if insects were to disappear, Life as we know it on this planet would disappear altogether, he said. But he also said he's hopeful, 
as efforts by communities and the Butterfly Pavilion are aiming to help, such as creating pollinator districts within cities and collecting data on butterfly monitoring. Amy Yarger, Director of Horticulture, said pollinator districts have seen increases in pollinators, and even small actions can make a difference. Pollinator Palooza hopes to get more people involved. Some of the things that all of us can do, whether it's planting a garden, putting out flower pots, can make an impact, she said. In an interview, Reese, Governor Jared Polis's husband, urged residents to talk to their city council members and county commissioners about planting native plants in their jurisdiction. There's a tendency to plant non-native, like Kentucky bluegrass, which is beautiful, it's soft and looks pretty, but it's not great for native wildlife, he said. Reese touted a bill he's working on that's moving its way through the legislature, which will limit the use of a group of pesticides called neonicotinoids. He said they're toxic to pollinators. Reese also said the legislature passed a bill for a pollinator license plate that generates funds toward pollinator conservation. How community members can make their own impact and learn more about pollinators can be learned throughout the celebration at the Butterfly Pavilion. Stories from a Horrific Era in History by Bruce Goldberg Paul Galen has vivid memories. He remembers the numerous beatings he took in school because Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler were determined to wipe out Jews. He remembers Jewish stores being looted. He remembers Jewish families being kicked out of their homes, often put on trains bound to concentration camps. Galen, 87, who came to the United States in 1951, was born in Czechoslovakia. He is a Holocaust survivor. I have vivid memories of the whole experience, the separation, the family, some really horrible experiences, Galen said. I just had to deal with it. I dealt with it as an adult, not as a child, and put it all into perspective. Today, Galen travels extensively to give pro bono presentations about anti-Semitism and what his family went through before somehow trickling back to their home, one by one, as World War II wound down. Galen has been giving talks since 2006, when he retired from a career of making documentary films. He's traveled across the U.S., even as far as Alaska, to deliver his message. I've traveled with students to Poland and Israel six times, Galen said. One such talk took place on April 19th at Denver's Redline Contemporary Art Center. Galen spoke in front of about 170 people, a mix of students and community members. Galen's talk was part of the 42nd Annual Governor's Holocaust Remembrance Program. The Anti-Defamation League served as program convener its 42nd year in that role. Amir Randell, who teaches a Holocaust history class at Rise Up Community High School, helped arrange Galen's talk in Denver. As a history teacher for more than two decades, there is nothing that can parallel learning from a primary source, especially from a person who lived this horrific era in our history, Randall said. I hope it gave the students a greater sense of empathy for something that happened to a fellow human being, feeling othered the feeling of extreme fear and cruelty, juxtaposed with his belief that all people can be good or bad, not to hate. Galen told about going to a forced labor camp and waking up one morning to the news that the camp had been liberated. He described the long journey he and his family took on foot into the mountains in unstable weather in attempts to escape the Nazis. 
There were times when Galen's family, desperate for a good night's sleep and a long way from home, wound up sleeping in the same room as German soldiers who didn't suspect that they were Jews. Somehow, they got through those times undetected. He recalled that when his family received permission to change their last name so that they wouldn't be suspected to be Jewish, his anti-Semitic teacher announced the name change in class, then turned around and stayed that way while several students beat up Galen. I spent my whole life recalling terrible things, Galen said, but I put it into perspective with the rest of my life that I wanted to do something useful. I decided I was going to teach young people. And the reactions he gets from young people, he said, are just amazing. War Vets Share Stories with South Students by Christy Stedman Elaine Westblade talked about how she and her husband, the late, late Maynard Westblade, promised to keep in touch by writing letters to each other every day he was overseas fighting in World War II. They met when Elaine attended Denver South High School and Maynard was studying at the University of Denver. Their romance was put on hold. Maynard was part of the 42nd Infantry's Rainbow Division. The artilleryman helped liberate prisoners in the infamous Dachau Nazi concentration camp in Germany. Despite the horrific human toll of the war, Elaine was convinced that her beau would return home. They'd gotten engaged before Maynard left. I couldn't find a wedding dress because they were using fabrics for dresses for things in the war, Elaine said. At home, Elaine had to get creative in the face of wartime rations. She recalled that people were on rations, everything from sugar to gas, and were only allowed to purchase one new pair of shoes per year. I was going to several of the stores in Denver down on 16th Street before it became a mall, Elaine said. I couldn't find anything, so a friend of mine offered me hers to wear, but it was too big, so I took it to another friend who altered it. My sister had a veil I could use. Just months after Maynard returned home in 1946, the two got married. Carrie Frame was drafted and served in the Vietnam War when he was 18. He was stationed as a Marine in that country after completing about a year of boot camp and specialized training. He told students that Vietnam was one of the most controversial wars in U.S. history. When I got home, there was a lot of animosity nationwide, and especially in L.A. There were people demonstrating against the war, Frame said. It felt like, are they supporting us or not? We're just doing what we're supposed to be doing for our country. There was apprehension about protesters. There were instances when people in our group were spit on when in uniform. Dr. Walter Olterheide, a South alum, was drafted in 1943. He served in the U.S. Navy during World War II, and his job was to care for injured seamen. He was trained at the San Diego Naval Hospital and stationed at the Coco Solo Naval Base Hospital in Panama. After the war, he returned home and started a private practice. There's nowhere better than Denver, Colorado, the 102-year-old Olderhyde said. Westblade, Frame, and Olderhyde are residents of the Claremont Park Life Plan community in University Hills. They traveled to South on March 2nd to give a living history lesson presentation to about 159th and 10th grade history students. Four junior reserve officers training course students served as chaperones for the veterans. The event brings history to life for these students, said Colonel Marvin Meek, 
who leads South's Junior Reserve Officers Training Corps, or JROTC, program. A lot of the residents at Claremont Park are South alumni, said Chuck Montera, Claremont Park Community Relations Representative. The presentation lets students hear from those who helped shape history and experienced tumultuous times. This is the 11th year that Claremont Park veterans presented to the students, Montera said. He expects the program to continue. The World War II veterans and civilians from that era are dwindling in numbers. It's super rewarding to be able to offer this opportunity to students, said Diana Bustamante, a social studies teacher who helps organize the event. It's powerful for students to hear from people who are wanting to share their stories. They learn history is not too disconnected from our experiences today. Centennial Family Selling Garden Boxes to Support School Therapy Dogs by Taylor Shaw After surviving a school shooting, three brothers in Centennial are working together to donate money to help support the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office school therapy dogs and the agency's efforts to keep students safe. It's been really cool to have my kids be able to find something that they can have a connection to, that they can give back to, said Bambi Watson, the mom of the three boys. Her sons, Bannon, Bryson, and BG, build and sell garden boxes through Facebook Marketplace. For each box sold, they donate $5 to Back the Blue Canine Force, a nonprofit that helps fund school therapy dogs and law enforcement canine units. The idea originated when Watson saw a Facebook post from Back the Blue Canine Force asking for money to help support Rex, the Arapahoe County's Sheriff's Office first ever school therapy dog who serves in Littleton Public Schools. The Watson family knew Rex as they had met him and Deputy John Gray, a school resource officer and the canine handler of Rex, during a school fun run. They like to give back to things that mean something to them and that they have a connection to. So as soon as they found out that this was to Rex, it was just an immediate connection with my kids, Watson said. Having school therapy dogs like Rex, a certified therapy dog who's also trained in detecting firearms, is the perfect way to get guns out of school, find guns in schools, keep our kids safe, and keep our kids happy, she said. My goal in donating is... I don't ever want my kids to go to a school again where there is a school shooting, and I can't think of a better way to make sure it doesn't happen," she added. On May 7, 2019, Watson's three children were at Stem School Highlands Ranch when two people opened fire, killing one student and injuring eight others. Watson reflected on how intense and chaotic the shooting was for her and her children, who were in kindergarten, second grade, and third grade at the time. It was the last day her sons went to school there. The family moved out of the state shortly afterwards, and Watson said she did not plan on coming back to Colorado. Prior to the school shooting, Watson had tried to get a school resource officer at STEM School's Highland Ranch, she said. As previously reported by Colorado Community Media, the school did not have a school resource officer when the shooting happened. Rather, it contracted with a private security firm that employs men and women with military backgrounds and as guards. I was so angry that I couldn't process anything, and I just wanted to get out of Colorado, Watson said. After leaving Colorado, the Watson family traveled across the country, which was amazing, she said. 
And then my husband's boss asked if we could move back, she said. And so we did. And we really struggled with where would they go to school where they would be safe. In December of 2019, the family returned to Colorado and now lives in a centennial neighborhood near Heritage High School. At the time, Watson was angry about moving back. Meeting Rex and learning about his role, however, helped bring her comfort. Getting to know Rex and seeing that there are changes being made, it's really helped me to pocket that anger and to actually want to be part of it, Watson said. There's trust now with me. There's like a feeling of comfort letting my kids go to school. When Deputy Gray found out that the Watson family was donating money to help support the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office school therapy dog program, he said it was incredible to see. I think it validates the point of our program, right? Because our purpose in this program was to do just that, to make kids feel safe and to be able to build relationships with kids, Gray said. The Sheriff's Office has five school therapy dogs so far, Rex and Zeke in Littleton Public Schools, Riley and Bear in Cherry Creek Schools, and Otis in Byers and Deer Creek Schools. I'm unaware of any agency in the state that has dogs designated to work only in schools that are both certified therapy dogs and can also provide school safety, Gray said. Rex, for example, is getting trained to search for guns and explosives, and Zeke is trained in detecting electronics such as storage devices, hard drives, and flash drives, he said. It's kind of cool that in two years we've gone from one dog to five dogs. And you know, currently we're working on training our third dog in his dual purpose, which is to, again, find guns. And that's Riley, Gray said. We're not looking to get kids in trouble. We're just looking to keep kids safe and to provide them support. So far, the Watson family has donated more than $840. The money will help the sheriff's office get all the materials it needs to train Rex, Gray said. It's a huge help, he said. Because otherwise, you know, that leads to us having to go try to find ways to fundraise to get the materials that we need. One of the assets of having a dog trained in detecting explosives in the school is that it allows the agency to investigate bomb threats more quickly, he explained. It could take hours if you had to call in another agency's dog and wait, right? But now we have dogs working during the day in our own schools that could go clear a school in 20 minutes and have kids back safely in class, which is huge, he said. When it comes to making schools safer, Gray said that the agency's school therapy dog program is one of the solutions. Is it a perfect one? Nothing's perfect. But when you start stacking these things together and we layer solutions, that's when we get results, Gray said. You have an SRO in the building that's trained in how to respond to stuff. You have a dog that can find guns. You have. You're building relationships with kids and helping mental health. Reflecting on the impact of the Watson family's donations, Gray said, what they're doing is bigger than just Rex. And I think that's what's important, he said. Yes, they're raising money for those training supplies, but the idea behind it is bigger than that. Watson has always gardened, she said, and after moving into their centennial home, the family started building garden boxes. Her sons then had the idea to put the garden boxes on Facebook Marketplace to see if they could earn some money from selling the boxes. We kind of do it all together, Watson said about creating the garden boxes. 
The only two things that they, her sons, need help with are cutting the wood and moving the wood, but they build the rest of it themselves. In April of last year, so many orders came in that the family was making 100 boxes a week, Watson said. This year is the first time the family is directly donating part of the money earned from selling the boxes, though the family has given boxes for free to first responders and members of the military in the past. Watson's son, Bannon, said one of his favorite parts of the process is getting to see everyone who comes to get a garden box. We work really hard on these boxes, Bannon said. Addressing Issues Through Dialogue by Bruce Goldberg It seems so long ago, but there was a time that Jewish people and black people banded together to help push the nation's civil rights agenda across the finish line. But that was in 1960s. Today, the two groups barely seem to know each other, and relations are hindered by mistrust, misunderstanding, and anger from both communities. It comes during a period of white supremacists increasing attacks, physical and through social media, against both groups. Still, if Denver's Karen Press has her way, the two groups gradually will move closer via the organization she recently formed called the Denver Dialogue, a conversation between Denver blacks and Jews. Press was spurred to action after hearing the anti-Semitic attacks by Kanye West a few months ago. After a preliminary meeting a few months ago at a Montbello barber shop, the second gathering drew more than 100 people to George Washington High School's library on March 15th. The group conducted a frank talk about the tensions between the two communities and how to close that gap. We want to address some of the issues between the two groups and see if there's a way both can work together to combat white supremacy, said Press, a retired attorney. This grassroots movement is not controlled by any church, synagogue, school district, or advocacy group. It's our communities coming together with no agenda other than understanding, reconciliation, and combining to fight the white nationalists that want to destroy us both. White nationalist groups send out a steady stream of fake news lies and anti-Semitic and racist materials and tropes. This group, the Denver Dialogue, would like to begin a dialogue and see if the relationship can be repaired to at least work together to fight this common adversary, Press said. The March 15th event was a breakthrough, and some attendees suggested not only more gatherings, but also some with a social bent, such as a barbecue. There was a frankness, as some Jewish attendees said they didn't know any black people, and some black attendees said the same about Jews. The gathering not only enabled people to learn about others, but it also helped debunk some of the supremacists' messages. Israel's relations with Palestine was a hot topic on March 15th, and some of the black attendees were interested to learn that not all Jews felt the same way about Israel's actions. Jews in attendance learned that some black people were horrified by, by what West had to say. That can help open some doors. Anti-Semitism is a real thing, said Evan Weissman, an activist with Warm Cookies of the Revolution and one of the two guest speakers on March 15th. For a lot of white Jews in the Denver area, it's not something that's felt in the same ways as systemic institutional prejudice is. Speaking for white Jewish folk, we need to be involved in racial justice efforts all the time, not just when it affects Jews in a more direct way.
Theo Wilson, a black man who is the executive director and lead facilitator with Shop, Shop Talk Live Incorporated, was the event's other speaker. I don't operate from a hopeful frame, he said. This is what is necessary, and this is in front of me. It's necessary to have this conversation, to build this bridge. We can't move forward unless we understand that this is what we have in common. Wilson has been involved in improving relations between African immigrants and black Americans. In summary, Press said, it's a waste to fight amongst ourselves. We're putting energy into not trusting others. There are people that want to annihilate both. It's dumb. We should be helping each other. We should be understanding each other and reconciling. Week Highlights Work of Town Clerks by Chancey J. Gatlin Anderson A proclamation issued by the town of Elizabeth on April 25th designates the week of April 30th to May 6, 2023 as Professional Municipal Clerks Week. Unanimously adopted by the town of Elizabeth Board of Trustees, the proclamation extends appreciation to all municipal and deputy clerks for the services they provide their communities. Specifically, the proclamation cites that the clerk serves as the professional link between the citizens, the local governing bodies, and agencies of government at other levels. The proclamation was presented to Municipal Clerk Michelle Oser and signed by Mayor Nick Snively. It also honors Municipal and Deputy Clerk Harmony Malakowski for continually striving to improve the administration of their duties through participation in education programs, seminars, workshops, and annual meetings of their state, province, county, and international professional organizations. Being a town clerk is a job like no other. There are so many different aspects to being a clerk. There are municipal, state, and federal laws that need to be adhered to which are not always fun or popular commented Oser in an email correspondence from April 21st. Keeping up with changes in laws is challenging and has you learning all the time. The International Institute of Municipal Clerks, IIMC, a professional association of city, town, township, village, borough, deputy, and county clerks, sponsors Municipal Clerks Week. IIMC has 14,700 members throughout the United States, Canada, and 15 other countries. IIMC President Pamela Smith, MMC, the Legislative Administrator for Lee County, Florida, urges municipal and deputy clerks to highlight the importance of their roles and functions and the impact the municipal clerk's office has on the public. In a smaller town like Elizabeth, a clerk wears so many hats I have stopped counting. One minute you are processing licenses or working on a board packet. The next minute you are working with a student liaison, planning a town event or coming up with new and innovative ideas, explained Oser. All the hats are part of what makes this job so worthwhile, fun, and fulfilling. I thrive on multitasking and changing directors at the drop of a hat. The most fulfilling part of my job is being a part of the town of Elizabeth's team striving and working together to provide excellent services and opportunities to the community. Quoting Professor William Bennett Monroe, author of one of the first textbooks written on the topic of municipal administration, Pierce shares, No other office in municipal service has so many contacts. It serves the mayor, the city council, the city manager, and all administrative departments, without exception. 
all of them call upon it almost daily for some service or information. Tasha Cheveria, the town of Kiowa clerk, also weighed in with her thoughts on the job. The clerk position in Kiowa is important because the clerk is generally the first person anyone sees or talks to when they call or come into the office, explained Cheveria. The variety of work is what I love most about being the town clerk. Every day is a little different, and I'm constantly learning new things. There are many things I love about my job, Oser said. First, I love the people I work with. We share the same passion and goals, which makes coming to work enjoyable. As my duties have grown, I've been given the opportunity to do more town events and projects and to work more closely with my board and the local business owners. Hearing citizens say that they like the changes we are making is very satisfying. The citizens are our customers, improving things a little at a time to make them proud to live in Elizabeth and to enjoy what it has to offer is a delightful perk to my job. I can't say there is just one thing I love about my job. I like the opportunity to learn and grow while helping others do the same. I like when I make a difference, even if it's just a little difference for citizens, employees, and our public in general. I'm appreciative that people have trust in me to take on projects both big and small. I love that I'm a part of creating positive things for Elizabeth. Oser has so served as the Town of Elizabeth's Municipal Clerk since August 28, 2018. She started her career as deputy clerk in April of 2006 and has been a member of IIMC since 2006. Oser is also very active in the Colorado Municipal Clerks Association, Colorado Association for Municipal Court Administration, and Society for Human Resource Management. Malakowski is also very active in Colorado Municipal Clerks Association, Colorado Association for Municipal Court Administration, and specializes in records management. Cheveria has worked at the Town of Kiowa Clerk for one year and seven months. She's an active competitor in cowboy-mounted shooting. She competes both locally and around the United States. My job wouldn't be possible with all the people around me that work hard who are incredibly knowledgeable and dedicated, said Oser. This is a team I have the privilege to work with and I'm very proud of. Mobility Equipment Business Opens in Littleton by Nina Joss when Josh Liss's grandfather had problems with his wheelchair, no one knew how to fix it. And when Liss's father had a stroke, his family wasn't aware that lift technology existed to help him get in and out of his car. Now, Liss has started a business with his friend, Matt Moyers, who has also cared for family members with mobility challenges to help people in their community who face similar struggles. I've had these loved ones with mobility cha challenges throughout my whole life and didn't have the ability to solve those problems, Liss said. Now, I can help people who have some of these same issues solve those same problems every single day. Liss and Moyers celebrated the grand opening of their new business, a Mobility City franchise, with Littleton Business Chamber leaders, city representatives, and community members on May 2nd. Mobility City is a national company that provides repairs, sales, and rentals for mobility equipment, also known as durable medical equipment, including wheelchairs, scooters, walkers, rollators, hospital beds, lift chairs, and more. Prior to opening their franchise, Moyers was a business consultant and Liss worked in public affairs. Previously in his career, 
Liz worked with the Colorado Secretary of State's office, Jefferson County, and Boulder County in elections. Liz and Moyers, who were both born in the Denver area, joined forces when they realized they both wanted a change in their careers. We both were having our midlife awakening at the same time with different careers, Liz said. Matt was talking to a franchise broker and looped me in. Once we found Mobility City, we were like, yes, this is what we need to do. It's a feel-good business. We get to help people every single day. And so this is our calling. Mark Chachamp, a durable medical equipment vendor who works with Liss and Moyers, said he's happy to see a Mobility City in the Denver area. A lot of this equipment is kind of more for the aging population, and we definitely have that here, he said. Dechamp, who was born with a spinal defect called spina bifida, said offering mobility equipment also helps kids and teenagers with mobility challenges maximize their independence. Along with Liss and Moyers, two employees work at the new location to keep things running smoothly six days a week. Field technician Joe Oliva said he likes what the company stands for and is excited to watch business take off. Kaylee Wiegum, the customer experience manager, said she's looking forward to helping the community through her work. Littleton District 3 Council member Stephen Barr attended the grand opening of the new location which is in his district. He praised Liz and Moyers for their work, acknowledging how it supports the city's efforts toward increasing accessibility. We approach increasing accessibility from a policy and funding infrastructure standpoint, but those things don't really happen without the services that you all provide, creating that accessibility right for, to the individual, he said. We're excited about the services that you're bringing to the seniors in our city and for the folks that really need it. Littleton's Mobility City is located at 151 West Mineral Avenue, across Broadway from Littleton Adventist Hospital, and is open Monday through Saturday. Westminster hopes to turn Rodeo Market into a restaurant by Luke Zarzecki. Westminster is trying to turn the Rodeo Market into a new restaurant after the City Council gave direction at the May 1st study session, and they're looking for a tenant. Economic Development Director Lindsay Kimball said that 84% of respondents from a survey of residents of Harris Park and Historic Westminster wanted a restaurant to come into the space, and 74% of all who were surveyed said they want a restaurant. Seeing 84% wanted this, we had to give it our best effort, she said. City Councilor Bruce Baker doesn't like the idea. We are in the business of running a city, not a restaurant, he said. Baker asked about the vacancy rates for restaurants in Westminster. Stephanie Troller, Economic Resiliency Manager, said it's under 5%. This is a really difficult business, Baker said. He said it would need to be a destination location due to the lack of access to main roadway arteries. He asked how much parking it would need. Troller said it would be difficult to construct parking spots due to the built environment but said that there is enough street parking and walkability from the neighborhood to support the restaurant. Baker asked what amount of parking would be required under city code if the building wasn't already constructed, and it would be 40 to 50 spaces. Kimball said that the requirement would be absorbed by the availability of street parking. Baker said he wants to reduce the building and pave a parking lot with a scale model of the building to remember it. 
Mayor Pro Tem David DeMott said that there are other options for parking that can be made in place to help make it a thriving historic area. He said there is a lot of potential in that area. City Councilor Sarah Numrella asked if the city would be landlords if a restaurant moved in. Troller said yes. Since the city wouldn't have to pay property taxes, the rent would be lower than a typical lease. City Councilor Lindsay Emmons asked if there were any potential restaurateurs interested yet, and Troller said not yet, but there are occasional people interested in the building, with many being restaurateurs. Although Emmons said she is in favor of moving forward to make it a restaurant, she said it was difficult because she does not agree with the city being a landlord. She said if a restaurant doesn't work, she'd like to see a space for the community to be there. The building dates back to the 1940s, and be became the rodeo market in 1971. It was home to the South Westminster Arts Group from 2007 to 2018 when the city evicted the group and discussed renting the space to a brew pub. Welchester Elementary School students host annual Multicultural Night by Corrine Westerman. Dancing from Mexico, food from Lebanon, stories from Russia, Flower necklaces from Micronesia. For Welchester Elementary School students and their families, the world was at their fingertips during the school's annual Multicultural Night on April 27th. The entire school participated as the older grades hosted exhibits in their classrooms and the younger students completed class projects beforehand. Additionally, the school hosted a buffet-style dinner with Chinese, Mexican, Italian, and Lebanese foods, folklorico dancers, a youth mariachi band, and other games and crafts. Overall, organizers said, at least 10 cultures were represented. That doesn't account for the second graders, though, who each picked a country to research. Multicultural Night has become the school's most popular event, drawing more than 300 attendees this year. ESL teacher Sari Warburton-Pitt described how the event used to be formatted differently and most participants were ESL students and families. She added how the school wanted to draw more, draw more attendees but didn't want the students to feel like they had to present on their own culture, which would require more work. But this arrangement, now in its fourth year, makes Multicultural Night more of a school or community-wide effort. Everyone does something, she said, explaining how local businesses donated food, the staff and students prepared the exhibits and decor, and the families showed their support by attending. Multicultural Night features a different group of dancers each year. This time, Edgewater Elementary School's Folklorico Club dancers gave their first performance at Welchester. Multicultural Night also hosted a mariachi band for the first time, the Colorado Youth Mariachi Program's intermediate-level group, Mariachi Corazon Alegre, performed for a half hour toward the end of the night. Victor Becerra, who led the group, said the Colorado Youth Mariachi Program has performed at similar events before at schools and libraries. He felt the Welchester families made for a good crowd, saying he'd be happy to return for another multicultural night. Local Suburban Bars, a place for up-and-coming music talent in Denver metro area, by Ellis Arnold. At the alley in downtown Littleton, you might find a musician who's so into the music, they'll get up and dance on the bar. When a local band surprises the crowd with a stellar performance that no one saw coming, 
It just knocks people's socks off, said Mary Rikes, the alley's bar manager and a Littleton area native. The watering hole on Main Street doubles as a music venue that finds and helps grow local talent, and the shows are free. It's one of the bars in the metro Denver suburbs that offers a window into up-and-coming homegrown performers amid a music scene that one longtime bar owner said is growing. Twenty years ago, when I opened up the bar, there were a few bars around that had live music, said Doug Jacobson, owner of Jake's Roadhouse in Arvada. Since then, he's noticed that all of these different bars now offer space for shows, said Jacobson, who has friends who perform at spots around Metro Denver. There's a lot of great musicians here, Jacobson said. Here's a look at places off the beaten path where you can catch some lesser known and sometimes famous music artists in person. Wild Goose Saloon in Parker offers a bit of a different environment. It's a bar, but also a large event venue. It aims to be Colorado's version of the Knitting Factory, a unique independent venue that hosts local and national artists, said Chris Dellinger, who serves as the co-owner of Wild Goose Saloon with his wife. They're both longtime musicians themselves. They perform in a band called Lola Black, garnered play on the radio and toured around the country, and have played Fiddler's Green Amphitheater several times, Dellinger said. They take their knowledge of the industry to running the Wild Goose, which was built around the concept of serving as a music venue and has a bigger stage, sound and lighting setup than most bars do, Dellinger said. It's kind of like every musician's dream to own their own venue at some place in time, and we just ended up being able to pull it off, said Dellinger, who lives in Aurora. After opening in July of 2021, Wild Goose has hosted some large country artists and some 80s artists that are still big, Dellinger said. National pop rock act American Authors is set to play there in late April. My motto is, if you don't like the music one night, that's okay. It'll be completely different the next night or the next week, Dellinger said. So we really try to have something for everyone here. His venue tries to get exposure for local talent by letting them open for national touring acts. For the audience, the typical admission cost for a national artist show at Wild Goose sits around $25 to $30, but local artist tickets shows can cost as low as $10, and most of the local artist shows are free. Dellinger and his wife have snuck in a performance or two at Wild Goose, he said. They were set to play there in late April with the Texas Hippie Coalition, an American heavy metal band. Music is always free to watch, too, at the Alley in Littleton on the southwest side of the Denver suburbs. The bar had its grand opening near the start of 2017 and has always featured live music, said Rikes, the bar manager. There were not that many places on Main Street here in downtown Littleton that featured live music other than karaoke or a DJ on the weekends, at least not regularly, Rikes said. If you did catch a live band, it was maybe one day a week. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.